Well, thank you so much, worship team, and thank you for singing. It's an honor to be with you this morning to, in a moment, open the scriptures with you and share a little bit about uh, God's Word with you. Uh, I'm excited to start a new series this morning. Uh, so if you're here this morning for the first time, man, welcome to chapter one of what will be an eight-part series, a series that we're calling A Friend of Sinners. And uh, I'm, I'm very excited to always start a new series, and especially this morning. And I'll tell you why more in just a moment. Uh, I'm also very excited, truth be told, about the weather this morning. And here's where that comes into play. Uh, you may or may not know, I actually tend to have a reaction to the winter over time. Maybe you're like this. I actually have found in the last several winters, I get like a low-level depression going on in the wintertime where I just lose some energy, I lose some creativity, I lose some whatever courage and fight that I don't want to, but I just get kind of like... Over time. So last week, uh, Jen and I, knowing this is kind of something that is my my problem, my issue, um, we had the chance and we planned. We went to Florida for two and a half days, stayed there for two nights, and had a chance to go there, and that was really great for us. We really enjoyed it. It was warm, and we rushed home. Okay, so we we flew home last Wednesday evening, and we got on a flight about an hour and fifteen minutes earlier than our original flight. Now, what that meant was we got to the airport and we kind of went up to the ticket counter and said, can we get on standby on the flight that leaves an hour and a half earlier because there's a big snowstorm coming into the Northeast, right? That massive thing that turned out to be kind of something on Thursday. And we were concerned that we'd get back in time. Well, that was great. It worked out. We were flying southwest. If any of you have ever flown southwest, you know their seating procedures. And that is that you kind of first come, first serve. You get a seating zone that you're assigned to, but you don't actually get a seat number. And so we, because we're standby on a different flight, we had last priority. On our original flight, we were in the A group. In this flight, we are C29. So when we got on the plane, there was literally only four people behind us yet to come into the plane. And Almost every seat was full. This was a totally booked flight, which meant we were going to have to be separated, which we could handle for about a two-and-a-half-hour flight to get home early. And that meant that I found myself sitting on a window seat next to a young man named Isaac, who I found out later was seven years old, and his mom, I don't even know her name, maybe Laura, I forget. Anyway, she was sitting there. And uh, in a moment, I found out that Laura was, I, I don't know if her name is Laura. I'm not going to say Laura because I'm angry. Anyway, she was a very um, outgoing person, and I learned that immediately. So I sit down, she's like, where are you from? And I'm like, <clears throat> hey, uh, Lancaster. Hey, that's New York, isn't it? I'm like, yeah, that's New York. Cool. Hey, before we go, I need to know, before we take off, are you like a Philly sports fan or a Pittsburgh sports fan? I just need to know before we take off. And I'm like, well, you know, Philly, uh, I don't know if we can do this the whole time. Hey, did you see that game last year between uh, the Flyers and Washington? Remember that? They were throwing stuff on the ice? Remember that? Hold on a second. And then she leans forward because the rest of her family is in the row in front of her, and her husband is there with three smaller children that he's taking care of by himself, and and this little girl, Ellie, starts crying. Hold on a second. Ellie, what's wrong? Hey, what happened to Ellie? What's going on with Ellie? And I'm like, oh, my word. Okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, her son, Isaac, um, is starting to ask me all kinds of questions about the plane and what's going on. It turns out I learned that this is a, a young Jewish family flying home to the Baltimore area. And so in time, the flight attendants come by and they offer um, you know, in-flight snacks and what they offered was Wheat Thins, a Poppables version, some new thing that Wheat Thins has thrown out there. And so they give Wheat Thins to our row, but they're a Jewish family. And so mom filters the food before it comes to Isaac and says to Isaac, no, we can't eat this. It's not kosher. 
right? So we know that. No problem with that. But Isaac is like, okay, <clears throat> not kosher. Isaac, he's, he's kind of like his mom, except the small version of mom. Okay, not kosher. I'm like, okay. So then here I sit with my snack. <laughs> and I stuffed it in the pocket in front of me just to take some of the tension off. And I ate it later, but I felt bad eating it in front of Isaac. He grabs a bagel from his backpack, like just a straight out plain bagel, nothing on it, just gnawing on a bagel and everything. Flight attendant comes back down the aisle, and mom gives these things back to the flight attendant, and the flight attendant has done this before, not her first rodeo. She understands, not kosher, not a big deal, take them and go. About an hour later, dad, who has his hands full in the row in front of us with crying small child, another small child on his lap, and another kid over here, all younger than seven, because Isaac is seven, he is like, if you ever been a parent on a plane and you have three kids... You use the front seat pockets for all kinds of things in the moment. Like, you got to throw the sippy cup in there or grab something, whatever. Well, he had thrown all the snack food in there when uh, the stewardess came by because he knew it wasn't kosher, but he didn't have time to explain it or to give it back. He just jammed it in. Well, something happened, and he needed that space, and so he grabs the snacks and hands them around like this to his mom, now in my row. Mom grabs them and stuffs them in the seat pocket in front of Isaac, to which he's like, Not kosher! And he just yells that out, like on the plane. As he has this reaction to this, like, oh, not kosher, kind of thing. And this is what Isaac was. And I'm sitting there, and here's what I'm processing. Number one, this is rather entertaining overall. I have no problem with their, their uh, philosophy and all that. But here's, here's the thing. Isaac is being trained on what his life should be. There's a very clear mission for Isaac. Don't eat non-kosher foods. And it is a gift to have a mom who very clearly lays out, if you do this, you will be taken off mission. You will not be a good, growing, young Jewish boy. This food will take you off of the purpose for what we think you are here to become. And as we gather around this series, Friend of Sinners, and we begin it this morning, wouldn't it be great, wouldn't it be great if we had the ability to have someone, maybe like Isaac, around, yelling at us when we do things, even subtly, that take us off mission. When our love for money takes our attention away from the things of God. When our fatigue, because we've overcrowded our schedule with good but not great things, means we don't have the energy to care for our neighbor the way that we really should. When our inability to forgive because we've been personally offended helps us retain bitterness and keeps us from joining in unity in the body the way we should. Wouldn't it be great to have someone say, non-kosher! That's not what we do. In this series, Friend of Sinners, Jesus comes and lays out from the very beginning of the series his mission. Why in the world he even came to the planet. And we're going to be dropping into the Gospel of Luke. It's the the third of four Gospels. And in this, Jesus comes and from the very get-go, from this morning... This morning is about Jesus' mission, and consequently, the mission of his followers, people like you and me, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus. 
The implication is if I say I'm going to follow him, if he lays out his mission and purpose so clearly, I need to understand and follow that too. And so I'm enthused to be jumping into this series. We're going to be spending eight weeks in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 4 and 5 is all we're going to get to, believe it or not. We're going to go through Luke 4 and 5. I'm excited because this is going to be team taught by myself and also Chuck Holt, the president and CEO of the Factory Ministries, and Pastor Kevin uh, on staff here with us in student ministry. So I'm excited about that element of it as well. And so this morning... We're going to jump into the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bible, I invite you to go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke is the third Gospel in the New Testament, and if you don't know where that is, just go like two-thirds of the way through your Bible, and you'll find uh, Matthew, then Mark, and then Luke. I invite you to turn there. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible in the pew is our gift to you, by the way. We'd love to have you take that with you if you don't own your own Bible. And uh, let me just say this at the beginning. We will see in this series twin ministry, two ministries of Jesus that go hand in hand. There is a teaching or preaching element of Jesus. We're going to see that this morning, this preaching element, this teaching. He has come to teach. We're going to see that throughout Luke 4 and 5. That's there. We're also going to see a compassion ministry of Jesus, coming to touch and heal the sick and those who are downtrodden. And he is able to do both without sacrificing either one. And so if you have ever wondered, how does a church care well for people in their community who need help in a social way while not giving up the truth of God's word? What does that look like to do both of those well? I just want to advance warning you, this is what we will see in the next eight weeks in Jesus' life, as he does both well and models for us how do we offer truth and teaching well of who God is while at the same time stepping into the lives very personally with people who need connection and need the love of God. Okay? Fair enough? Fair enough. What are you going to say? No? Okay, here we go. So Luke chapter 4, I invite you to turn there if you haven't, and here we go. Let me give you a little bit of background real quickly. Um, the Gospel of Luke opens up with Luke um, saying that he wants to give us a, um, a, an orderly account of Jesus' life. And so if you're someone who likes history, if you want to know something that this Gospel writer says, I want to give you something that is in order and accounted for uh, that makes sense. Uh, so you can trust this story that I'm about to, to tell you. In Luke chapter 2, then, um, we roll into the typical Christmas story, if you're familiar with that. Jesus is born, and then we roll from there into a little boy, Jesus in the temple, and then we see John the Baptist, and now we see the temptations of Jesus, where, this, where Satan has uh, engaged with Jesus and has tempted him with power and wealth and all this kind of thing, and Jesus has resisted those temptations and is now ready to launch into what we call his public ministry. So we're starting at a very key point in Jesus' life. This is the beginning of how people in the world in which he's living now will see him. It's the beginning of his public ministry. And so we're going to jump into Luke chapter 4, verse 14. <clears throat> Luke 4, 14, with a growing um, fame, really, around Jesus and awareness of him. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. All right, now... I'm going to do this all morning. I'm going to go into the text and out, in and out, in and out. 
So Jesus is going back to Galilee, and the, the news about him is spreading. People are knowing all about him. There's great awareness of him. And he taught in their synagogues. So this is funny. that This was his habit, was to go into the synagogue. This was the Jewish place of worship at the time. Synagogue worship was different in Jesus' time than it was in the Old Testament. It was less structured, a little more informal at this point because of a variety of things, including the fact that the nation of Israel was scattered during the Old Testament period of time with the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the nation itself and its core identity as we knew it in the Old Testament is different now because they had to come through all kinds of struggle and transition with national identity. So synagogue worship consequently became more informal. And we see that because here's the implication. Now here's what happens. Different people could come into the synagogue to teach. Just like I think even here in this church, it was historically true that if a visiting preacher or minister or uh, bishop were to visit, even at the last minute on a morning like this morning, it would be the custom to give them space and time to speak to you all with no advance warning. This was the case in the synagogues in this time. If a teacher comes, he would have the right to get up and speak as he might like. And Jesus leverages that for his benefit and for the benefit of the message in which he is giving. And this is why he goes into the synagogues, not because he was a Pharisee and earned the right to speak, just because this is the way synagogue worship was working at the time. Okay? So look at verse 16. So he decides now to go to his hometown. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. Okay, This is what happens. You stand up to read, and when you're done, you sit down. So he goes into the synagogue, leveraging the fact that he's able to do that, and then he gets up to read. Before we read what he says, I also want you to know this. This is the only speech that Jesus gives in the synagogue that is recorded in the entire Gospel of Luke. So if I were to tell you that and ask, well, how important do you think it would be if Luke decided of all the speeches that Jesus gave in the synagogues, of all of his background and history, Luke only records one. Is that just because he had no idea what else Jesus said? Or is it because this is so critical? to his mission and purpose. And I would argue that is the case. This speech, the fact that it is the only one recorded in the Gospel of Luke, is critical for us understanding why did Jesus come. So let's look what he said. Verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So imagine a scroll coming to, standing up Jesus in front of these people in the synagogue. So unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. And then he reads from Isaiah in verse 18 in your text there. And here's what it says. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then, verse 20, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Now, pause it there. Get in the moment for a minute. Jesus, all this fame is surrounding him. News about him spread through all the region. He returns to his hometown. He walks into the synagogue. There are religious people there listening. He gets the scroll. He does the scripture reading first, which was common. Stand up to do the scripture reading. And then... 
he gives the scroll back to the attendant and he sits down, the position of the teacher in this environment, to sit down to teach. Not because I'm done, but to teach. And the eyes of everyone were on him. What will he say about what he just read? What will his narrative be? What will his interpretation be? What does he have for us? Before we answer that, we have to know what they understood from this text and why Jesus would even pick that up in the first place. And then we'll see what he said. Because what he read was a passage that was critical to the identity of the Jewish people, their hope of the Messiah. And look at it again with me in verse 18. So he's saying, he's going to say the Spirit of the Lord is on me, not just in Isaiah, but it's going to be on me because he has anointed me, chosen me, selected me, and then here we go. We begin to preach, not just action, not just to come to be nice, but actually to preach good news to the, what's that say? To the poor. To the poor. Come to preach good news to the poor. Now, we need to understand what this means. In the Mediterranean world at the time, Poor is not just economically poor, but it is disadvantaged in any way. Let me say that again. Poor is not just economically poor, but it is disadvantaged in any way. This could be uh, gender discrimination. This could be your vocation was a problem. This could be economics, or it could be um, any kind of honor or shame that happens at all in the society in which you are living. This is what it means to be poor. Poor. Listen, this is why Jesus, who interacted with uh, tax collectors and sinners, this is why he would interact with people like tax collectors. They weren't economically poor, but they were poor in resources, people, relational resources. They were disenfranchised. They're poor. And so this is not just poor financially. This is poor from a whole variety of levels. In other words, the scope of Jesus' ministry is going to be for those people who are considered without. Without resources, without honor, without education, without a support structure, without economics, without answers. Those who are poor and lacking the resources necessary to move forward. This is the scope of Jesus' ministry. I have come to preach good news not to the resourced, not to the privileged, not to those who have, but to those who are without. And in case we wonder if that really is the case, the passage goes on. Look at the next sentence. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, he's saying, I have come for the people who are right now in prison, enslaved, who can't see their way through, who are blind metaphorically, who don't understand the ways of their Life are not going to lead to hope. I've come for those people who, now here's, here's the deal, if I'm honest, if I see a group of people like what Jesus is describing, I don't know that I first want to make friends 
with everybody like that? Am I alone on that? Because Jesus said, I have come to preach good news to the poor. Recovery of sight for the blind, to free the prisoner, to release the oppressed, and to bring about the year of the Lord's favor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is a reference to what is called in the Old Testament the year of Jubilee. It's described in Leviticus 25. And the year of Jubilee says this, every 50 years we're going to hit the reset button on property ownership so that we do not create a society in which you have the super rich and the super poor. In other words, if I were to own a property and I were to fall into bad decision-making, some kind of stuff of life happens. And for whatever reason, I needed to sell the property in order to make ends meet for my family. If there were 50 years until the year of Jubilee came, I could sell that property, to make this easy in my brain for math, I could sell that property for $50. You might buy that property from me for $50, but you would know that in 50 years, my children, who had nothing to do with the dumb decisions that I made that put our family in peril, my children will get that land back in 50 years. It is a reset. It is God's gift to the country, to the nation, to say, nope, we will not create a place where the rich will continue to prosper and oppress the poor. We're going to create something called the year of Jubilee, where land will go back. And so if it's only 25 years until the year of Jubilee, I can only sell that property for $25. Not 50 anymore. It's not worth 50. It's now worth 25. If there's one year till the year of Jubilee, I'm only going to get a buck for my property. It's on a sliding scale until the year of Jubilee comes. Jesus says, the year of Jubilee is here. Your debts that you have been sold into are gone. I've come to reset everything. You are no longer a slave to the debt that you have. I've come to bring the year of Jubilee. Amazing imagery. And so he sits down with the eyes of everybody in the room on him. And what is he going to say next? He sits down. And everyone's looking at him. There's silence in the synagogue. In verse 21 of your text. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this has all come true. You need to know this about the word today. You know in the Christmas story it says, Today, the city of David is born unto you a Savior. Remember that? That word today in the Greek signifies not just today, as in this present day, but on this day, we usher in a new truth that will have ongoing consequences. A new era starts today. It's not me saying, today I had eggs for breakfast. That's true. It's present day. What does that do for you? Not really anything at all. But today, in the city of David is born to you a Savior. Whoa. Like This day, something amazing happened. That's what Jesus is saying. Today is the start of a new era. And I'm telling you, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's an amazing statement. So the people are like, hmm, he seems like a smart guy. He's got great words. And look what happens in verse 22. 
All spoke well of him, and they were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. But then they began to ask, you can kind of hear the mumbling in the crowd, the murmuring, isn't this Joseph's son? Like He just claimed to be the Messiah. I mean, he just said, like, today I am initiating the year of Jubilee. I'm doing all this stuff. But come on, this is Joseph's son. I know who he is. This isn't the Messiah. Isn't that how it goes on work? And Jesus, being a good public speaker, understands the questions that people have before they even ask them. And so Jesus said to them, getting in their brains, he said, surely you're going to quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. This was an ancient phrase they used to use when they, in other words, they'd say, okay, prove it, prove it. You want to say that you can jump, you know, 10 feet in the air? You can say whatever you want. Heal yourself, prove it. Use your own medicine on yourself, prove it. So he's like, you're going to tell me, I know, prove it, you know, prove it. So do here, you're going to say, do here in your hometown what, the, what, you, uh, what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. And then he just went on, verse 24. He said, I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And then he gives two examples from their history, which are amazing. He says, I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. You know what that means to us? Not a lot. Like We've heard of Elijah, but who are these other people? I don't know what's going on. Here's what's happening. Number one, the period of Elijah in the history of the nation of Israel is not a high time. This is a low time in their history. But number two, Elijah, Jesus is telling them the story, and this is true, that Elijah went out from the nation of Israel and went to a Gentile person. Went to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. That God used his prophet to go away from his people to meet someone without a widow, a woman in a nation, in a place that wasn't even God's, under God's covenant relationship. And then, verse 27, Elijah's not enough, and then he went on to verse 27. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. In case you don't know his background, Jesus is Pushing on this, the Syrian. Remember him? Naaman, not the Israelite, the Syrian. In other words, God has historically taken his people and moved outside of God's blessed people to meet those without, and that is what I have come to do. To go beyond you, synagogue people, those listening here, the word of God has come to the Poor, those that you have cast without your walls, those who are not in the synagogue. And I'm just here to tell you, today a new era has begun. At which point, the people who are sitting there are like, that's cool. <laughs> not exactly. They are angry because they know exactly what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I haven't come for you. The Messiah that you are waiting for to come to you isn't coming directly for you. I mean, you're welcome to join the party, but listen, I am coming for those without whom you have rejected is the implication. And this is what happens then in verse 28. So this is why verse 28 makes sense. This is why all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, this is crazy. Verse 29, they got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. This is amazing. Mob, 
Take him out. I'm so mad. Take him out. All these people walking Jesus to the brow go, this is crazy. Imagine this happening. I don't want to imagine this happening right now because I'm in that position. I don't want you to do that to me. Anyway, but imagine this. And then verse 30, <laughs> this is also crazy, but he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. That was fun. Yeah, what's next? I have no idea how that happened. I, I'm not, that's not even the point of the thing. I don't even know. All that I do know is this, that Jesus' mission will not be stopped even if people want to get in the way. That's what I know. Another question is this. What is the makeup of the angry mob in this story? Not just a story, but in this reality, in this event. See, the makeup of the mob are the religious people. Right? The makeup of the mob are the people who have come to church for all their life, for lack of a better term. The makeup of this mob are people who, they know the stories that I just told you. Like without Jesus having to explain what I explained to us here this morning, they immediately knew what he was saying to them because they knew their Torah. They memorized it. And so the people immediately, most opposed to Jesus' ministry, immediately, from the beginning, are the people who knew the scriptures the best. The people who should have been tracking with him. That's sobering. These are the people who are used to not having those without with them. Because those people, they belong inside and they belong somewhere else. But we need purity, cleanliness, holiness to be the people of God. And Jesus has come to preach good news to the poor. Freedom for the imprisoned. Recovery of sight for the blind. Relief for the oppressed. To proclaim the year of Jubilee. So here's the question. Will Jesus' mission to those without go on with or without me? This isn't a U2 song, although you might pick that up if you're a U2 fan at all, with or without me. Okay. Will Jesus' mission to those without go on with or without me? This is the question that I have to ask myself because the, the message of the story is that Jesus' mission is going to go on. Like Even if I want to throw him off a cliff and kill him, it's not the time. It's going to go on no matter what. I can't control it. I can't stop that. This is where Jesus is going. This is what he's going to do. This is God in flesh coming to do this. And so I'm either going to get on or I'm going to be pushed out of the way. It's going to go on. And so the question only for me is not whether I like it or don't like it or whether I react or whatever. Just simply, is it going to go on with or without me? Like, am I going to be involved in it or not? That, that's really the question. And it, it, his mission wasn't to come to make the church a safe place or to, to create a place where we can all kind of just be morally and ethically clean. That just wasn't what he did at all. I mean, his mission was very, very different than that. And maybe to bring this home for me even further, let me ask this, because this is a question that kind of goes through me. Like, if you could create an ideal picture of the church in the future, even think about Grace Point Church, if you could create an ideal picture of Grace Point Church in five years, how many people without would be in the pews with us? But this is Jesus' mission, right? Like, this is what he came for. To bring the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those without. And the amazing thing in this whole thing is that the people who, um, the people who, in, in all of Jesus' ministry, the people who were furthest from religion, the people who were furthest from religion were closest to Jesus all the time. 
The people who were furthest from religion were always closest to Jesus. They were just always hanging around him. And he made them feel welcome. The people who were furthest from the religious system were always the closest to Jesus. That's just the way that it always worked. Let me ask you this. As you think about the church and its future makeup and how that works, like, think about it just for a moment right now. If you're a student, you think about people in your school who may fit into category being without. They don't have the resources you have. They don't have the support structure you have. They don't have the background that you have. And consequently, things aren't going well for them. And maybe you or your parents or whatever are saying, you know, don't hang out with the people like that. You know, okay? I, I kind of understand some of that. But I also understand Jesus came for those without. And so is the church a place where you could ever envision the people around you who are most without ever being in the church? And if the answer to that is, ha, 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 LOL, whatever you want to fill that in, like, then let me just suggest we have a problem to fix. Because Jesus' mission was this. Now let me also say, I don't feel like the sky is falling. I'm not an alarmist on this, but I also am a realist to say, listen, our default is not going to be to do what Jesus did. Our default is not going to be to say, let's just keep hanging out more and more and more with those without because this is what Jesus is. And this is why Jesus' mission is so important for us at the very beginning. So listen, I was on the plane with Isaac. Let me go back to Isaac for a minute. After we learned that the snacks weren't kosher, and I ate my snack after a while on the plane, that was good fun. But here's the way Isaac played it. Um, because mom was engaged with the kids in the front row, uh, and I was back there with Isaac, and I'm sitting at the window, and he wanted to look out the window as a seven-year-old, which was totally fine. Here was Isaac. Hey, how high up are we right now? How fast are we going? How far away from the airport are we? Are we over the land yet? Hey, what's that light over there doing? Are we in the water? And we're not over the water now? How far until we get to the airport? Hey, when we land, how fast do you think we're going to be going? I can't see the airport anymore. Are we ever going to get? Like, on and on and on and on and on and on and on. His questions defined his reality for him. And my answer has probably made no sense. I mean, how would you answer the question, how far away from the airport are we right now? We just took off about 25 seconds ago. I was like, I don't know. It's like half a mile. I don't know. I mean, a mile. Maybe a mile. I don't know. I was like, and, oh, okay. It didn't matter what I said. But he's just thinking out loud. But his questions and the answers to them framed up reality for him. It's a good thing to ask a lot of questions. And the more inquisitive you are, the better a handle you can get on reality, right? And so let me ask a couple questions with you. If asking questions is good, it's good to help us get a sense of reality. Here's the questions I might ask on this. Number one, who around me is without? As you look around the people around you, who around you is without? And do I even notice the people around me that are without? Who around me is without? Without honor, without resources, without support, without help. Who around you is without? Number two, I'd ask this, what is my attitude toward those who are without? Like, hey, you may get it together, work harder. If you'd only show up and quit calling off work, you'd be fine. Like, is that kind of the way that is? What is my attitude toward those who are without? If only you could pull it together, you know, whatever. Just, you know, they keep making bad decisions. They keep, you know, cussing at this person. They never show up. You know, what's my attitude toward those who are without? Number three, what is my hope for this church's involvement with those who are without? That's another more pertinent question. What is my hope for this church, for those who are without? Because we know, and here's a sobering reality, the people who are most angry that Jesus came for those without were the people in the church, in the synagogue. That's just sobering for me. Okay? Now, in the Old Testament, last story I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to be done here in just a moment. 
There was a time in the history of the nation of Israel when King David made some terrible decisions. Some of you know the story, and he, um, he had an affair. He slept with this woman named Bathsheba, and then he had his, uh, Bathsheba's uh, husband killed to cover that up. And the nation of Israel kind of went downhill after that. He went downhill personally, and he had such sin in his life that he even wrote in Psalm 51 that his bones ached from the pain of that. Okay, this is a deep thing for him. Well, how would you go about telling a king that, I mean, you really blew it, you need to repent before God? How would you do that? How would you approach a king and say to him, hey, this is, this is what you've done? The prophet Nathan was assigned that task. God said to Nathan, Nathan, you go talk to David and kind of make him own up to what's up. So Nathan goes into David, and he says to him, David, let me tell you a story. There was a poor man who had one little lamb, one little ewe lamb. It was a rich man who had a bunch. The rich man took the poor man's lamb, sacrificed it, and served it to his guests so that he could have a good meal because he didn't want to sacrifice one of his own. What do you think should happen to that rich man? And David's like, man, he should be you know, held accountable, should be killed, blah, 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 blah. Bring him in here. I'm really angry. I can't believe we do that. To which Nathan has a moment. He's like, you are that man. Ancient mic drop, right? Here it is. Like, all of a sudden, I'm coming into an awareness that I am that man. And so let me ask this final question with that spirit in mind. Have I ever been without? Have I ever been without? Have you ever been without? Are we not, all of us, the poor? All of us. Are we not all the oppressed, the blind, unable to see our way through on our own? And has Jesus not come to be a friend of sinners, of which, as the Apostle Paul would say, I am the chief because I'm without. We're without. This is why Jesus' message is so compelling. Because he's come actually for people like you and people like me. Not just for people, whoever they are, out there. He's come for us. He's come to us to say, keep carrying this message to those without hope, those without resources, those without a future, those without support, socially, spiritually, everything else. To bring the year of Jubilee. To be a friend of sinners. And this is why I'm so excited about this series, because it drives us right back to the mission of Jesus. And we say at Grace Point Church, we want to be developing fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And I'm looking forward to eight weeks of seeing Jesus push us on what it actually means to do the things that we say we really want to do. I invite you to come back next week for part two. Chuck will be leading us, friend of sinners, next week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be together this morning and to reconvene around the reason why the Son of God would come to this earth to declare his mission so clearly and succinctly and difficultly as he did to make us very uncomfortable, and also to make us very comfortable in His presence. To recognize that we have not worked our way up to His favor. 
But we indeed are the sinner. We are the poor. We are all the oppressed. And we share with humanity in the struggle of sin. And none of us is guilt-free from that. And so as we remember our position as being saved, may we never create a culture that keeps people without, out. But always presses in. Always presses in. To bring hope where there is brokenness. To move us as a people, to deliver this very news and this very life-transforming hope to the very same people who we are as well. So we are grateful, Father, for your Son's kind grace on all of the brokenness in our own lives. and Give us courage to see it and consequently extend it to the people around us in very intentional and loving ways. We'll ask this in Jesus' name.